Today is Wednesday. It's October 25th, 2023. It's 2.42 in the afternoon. Hi, I'm John Williams, and this is the Mincing Rascals podcast. We broadcast portions of this Saturday nights at 8 o'clock on WGN Radio, and that's where you can hear me weekdays from 10 to 2. Hey guys, Brandon Pope here, host of On the Block, powered by Block Club Chicago, and the Making Podcast from WBEZ. Marge Halperin, communications consultant, political pundit, and political organizer, often with Indivisible Chicago. I'm Eric Zorn, the very disappointed proprietor of the Picayune Sentinel, a weekly Substack newsletter. First of all, Marge, welcome. And here's how we always start the podcast. We always introduce ourselves. And then instead of diving into the topic that we've all agreed we're going to start on, we have to address whatever it is that Eric has said and what is troubling him. So here we go. Hey, Eric. (laughs) Yes. What's troubling you? Why are you disappointed? I'm disappointed in my Michigan football program. Oh, okay. I've been following I've been following the Wolverines since I was five years old, and they seem to have really stepped in it this year with a sign-stealing scandal. And the worst thing is that I've got to face Brandon Pope, the Ohio State fan, on this podcast and, and eat crow because it looks like Michigan's been cheating at least this year and maybe even in the years gone by. Uh, just a very disappointing week yeah, for yeah. Michigan football. Lock them up. Lock them up. <laughs> <laughs> What's that T-shirt say that you're wearing, Brandon? Uh, it says undefeated Rose Bowl champions of 1968. Good little vintage Ohio State shirt. Yeah. Gotta love it. Here's the thing. I did not realize you couldn't steal signs. I mean, you got 100,000 people in the stadium watching the guy pat his head and rub his belly. That means running play or defense of some configuration. How is it that noticing that and then relaying that to your team is cheating, number one, but number two, if it affects the outcome of the game and you're not supposed to do it, well, now they're the New England Patriots. I mean, wow, what a bunch of cheaters, or the Houston Astros, for that matter. I think sign stealing itself on its face, I think every team sign steals in almost every sport. And I'm okay with it, I think, Brandon. But I think what the issue was here was the level of sign stealing, the 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 uh, levels it went to, this this assistant coach allegedly purchasing game tickets to opposing teams' games. 11 of them. To record the whole game and, and see their signs. That, that's, that's nefarious. I think it's one thing if you're competing against a team, you've noticed some things and you take their signs and take it with you the next game. But to intentionally go out, scout games, pay for games, and steal signs, ooh, that's dirty. That's dirty. But don't they look at footage of games in advance? Aren't they studying the right? Other teams? The teams are they're the games are broadcast on the sideline while they're watching what happens on the field. So that footage does not include what happens on the sideline. The all twenty-two footage is strictly by NCAA rules, just what's on the field. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Well, so. you know, I would I would agree that it's a strange little nitpicky rule in a way, but it is a rule, and sports is filled with rules and. As much as it pains me to say it, if you break the rules, you're cheating. You know, it's like if a quarterback is uh, half a foot across the line of scrimmage when he throws a forward pass, it's not a valid pass. And it's okay, it's just a half a foot. But but the pass is, no matter where the pass goes for a touchdown, it's called back. And I I think what's going to happen here is that that the uh, Michigan's going to have to, they've won eight games this year, they're going to have to give up. Every victory that they had where they sent a scout to an opposing stadium, my guess is they probably didn't 
send one to East Carolina last year because they were playing some of these uh, cupcake teams in the early part of the season. But but if you but, vacate uh, their wins, then that means they would this year be bowl ineligible then, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. Man, sure. they're the number two team in the country. I'm guessing that's going to be that's what's, what's going to happen. And and, it, and it's and also it means that Harbaugh has to go. Jim Harbaugh, the coach, has you would to go, fire the coach over this. It seems like just such a an infraction of a rule I didn't know existed. You would it, fire the coach. But, but, but John, it's it is it, you're right. But it's a it's an important rule, and everybody knows the rule. And when you break it, you you put into play exactly these kind of sanctions. And so, yeah, I, you, you've got to fire the coach. And then all these recruits are going to say, well, maybe I don't want to go play for someone uh, someone else or, or, or an unknown coach. And players are going to enter the transfer portal. And, and Ohio State's going to clobber Michigan. And uh, it's just going to be a, a terrible, terrible year next year. Isn't part of this that Harbaugh has been very vocal about cheaters also? Just like politicians, you know, nobody's going to hit Trump for all of his transgressions, whether it's sexual harassment or cheating with his uh, finances or anything else, because you kind of expect that from him. But if Biden, as soon as you find out Biden has one piece of paper document hidden in his garage, it's an uproar because he's clean and you don't expect him to cheat in any way. Didn't Harbaugh set himself up kind of like that? He did. He, he, He accused Ohio State of cheating. In 2019 and 2020. Wow. And look at him now. Look at him now. He's about to, <laughs> he's about to go get a nice NFL job before the heat gets too yeah, hot. Yeah, he'll be the coach of the Bears before this conversation oh, is God. over. But yeah. if he wants that job. But we'll, we'll vote. Marge, does, does he lose his job, yes or no? Do I care as much as Eric? No. I would think no. In the scope of scandals, I went to Michigan. I also went to Michigan State. That's another story. But Michigan State has very deep transgressions, um, sexual harassment. And as you said, uh, Northwestern, these rules of the game are arcane and not as important to me. So you'd let him keep the job or you'd fire him? I think I'd let him go. Let him go. Brandon, you going to fire the coach? No, I mean, let him stay. Oh, you'd let him get away with it. No, I meant let him get away with it. We need to be clear about that. There is a difference. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, you going to fire the coach? Uh, Yes, but he's not going to get fired this season. They're going to finish out this season. Uh, Last hurrah. The TV ratings are going to be through the roof. Yes. And then you're going to can him. And And if he so much as scratches his nose on the sidelines, the cameras are going to catch him. Oh, my God, look, look. He's sending in a signal. Eric, your thoughts, My go. prediction, he leaves before he gets fired. He'll be out of here like Pete Carroll was at Really? Years. This Absolutely. is amazing to me. If these allegations are true, he's got to go. And, and and it's going to be unfortunate for, for my beloved Michigan Wolverines, but that's the way it's got to be. <laughs> I guess I say fire him, too. He, I, I want Brandon's laugh to be my ringtone. Man. <laughs> Well, he's very, he is especially happy right now, isn't he? Of course, we haven't gotten to his maybe amending the record about last week's podcast, and we'll get to that later in this pod. So I know what you're thinking. Who is Mike Johnson? Well, I did what at least one U.S. senator said she was going to do today, Google him. And lo and behold, Mike Johnson is the new Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States of America. Actually, I wikied him, and here's what I found. He is an attorney who spent much of his career, these are his words now, defending religious freedom, the sanctity of human life, and biblical values, and traditional marriage. Close quotes. He is an 
ideological member of the Christian right faction of the Republican Party, known for strong opposition to legal access to abortion. He feels medical marijuana is a gateway drug. He is against same-sex marriage. He filed an amicus brief in support of a lawsuit challenging the results of the 2020 election. He has won his district by wide margins. In fact, in 2022, he ran unopposed. He was among 147 Republicans who voted to overturn the 2020 election results. So what do we think about him? And is it better to at least have him or somebody in the speaker's seat so we can move along? Well, I took a look at his voting record and, you know, he is opposed to the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. He was opposed to reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act. He was opposed to capping out-of-pocket insulin costs at $35 a month. He he was opposed to ensuring the right to contraception. This guy is a wingnut. Uh, he is on the far edges of American politics. He's on the far edges of even his own party. And my only hope is that because so many of the positions that he stakes out are unpopular with the American people, that his record is going to play into the campaign in 2024 for the House so that all these Republicans in swing districts or who or have, uh, have plausible challengers are going to hammer the incumbent Republicans for their support of this guy who, who uh, you know, and he is a guy who's written that same-sex marriage is going to lead to people marrying their pets and and so it just it could be one of those things where the worse the better or they elect somebody who's such an extremist that defines their party and that it redounds poorly on all republicans Hmm. that's that's my thought and my hope marge i didn't think that a house speaker has coattails like that that if that were the president and they were supporting him i i would understand that do you agree with eric that as goes the speaker, maybe so go some of the seats in the House? Well, there are vulnerable Republicans who are in districts where they won their seat, but the district went for Biden. So when you have that kind of potential for more uh, Democratic votes and more votes moving toward the left, if not too far, but a little. Um, then you tell those voters that here's a guy who backed the wingnut that Eric just described. Um, I think that makes them vulnerable. I, I've seen all that Eric said and so much more. Uh, the clip I was looking at just before we started here was Johnson saying basically uh, that among the evils of Roe v. Wade is that if not for abortions, women would give birth to more able-bodied workers, and we wouldn't have to select (laughs) Medicare and Social Security the way we want to. So um, convoluted, nutty, to say the least. I saw someone else describe him as Jim Jordan with a jacket, which is not a good thing. It's funny. How did I not know about this then? How, How has he been under the radar if his views have been so polarizing? He's in that kind of a goofy clip on Twitter. He would just pop up and say these weird things, and you'd forget Mike Johnson's name. Yeah, he has a fairly ordinary name, and he's also Hmm. a backbencher. But he was, I think, the lead attorney for the effort to overturn the election yes. from the House. The so so he is, he is uh, like I said, he is far out. And I don't know what exactly the Republican Party is thinking, other than that they couldn't possibly have elected anybody who wasn't far out. I get your point that he's a wingnut, but I, either we don't know him or he's not come across 
so nutty. I mean, very conservative in his views, but is he really a... Um, was he a Marjorie Taylor Greene? No. Well, right. Put it this way. Maybe, in fact, these views which you were describing as nutty uh, are enough in line with the Republican Party right now that he's more a logical choice than a nutty choice. Are we going to draw the line between a wing nut and a whack job? Is that, is that where we're at here? I think I am. That's space, I, think that's... I think that's a space he, he enjoys. It's fascinating to me um, that it took them this long to come to an agreement on this guy. Like, you know, it's kind of anticlimactic of all the people. How come he didn't come to the forefront sooner if this was going to be the unity candidate? And it just seems like. At this point, the GOP just got tired. They just yeah. got exhausted by it, right? And just said, please, just first guy we get that we can all somewhat come to something about, let's go for it. Well, let me ask you this. If he had come up first, if he was the mm-hmm. first choice after Kevin McCarthy, do you think he sweeps the vote? I don't think so. No. No. I, 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 th- I still think that that civil war within the Republican conference is right there. You have some good, decent, classic Republicans in that house who are being taken hostage by the other side, the Matt Gateses and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and such. And I'm, I'm curious what deals had to be struck behind closed doors. I think this drama is going to ensue. I mean, maybe maybe they get the Ukraine and Israel deals passed. Maybe we but once we get to like the the debt ceiling, which is coming up very, very soon, um, I think you're going to see more and more chaos. Matt Gates is definitely going to pop off. If he even steps one bit out of line. You think this guy's yeah. going to hold Matt Gates in check somehow, some way, for something? No, I'm saying Matt Gates probably still has him by the, to, for, for lack of a better he, term, has him by the balls. I, I think he, it's Matt Gates's conference. Johnson voted to uh, against additional aid to Ukraine. Uh, he voted for the he voted for the government shutdown or he voted against the, the uh, continuing resolution to avoid the shutdown. I don't know exactly where the House is going to go. With this guy leading it, but you needed a consensus candidate. I mean, the thing is that the that the country is pretty evenly divided. Uh, Democrats, Republicans. The the Republicans won exactly fifty percent of the overall vote for the U.S. House in twenty twenty two. So the the country is like half Republican, and and it's a little less for Democrats because there's some other candidates mixed in there. But what I think what the people want, what the what the country wants, is not extremists running their branches of government, but people who can work across the aisle. And and this faction of the Republican Party has no interest in working across the aisle, no interest in compromise with the with the Democrats. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen and how many days it is before the uh, government's going to shut down. But I can't see someone unless Mike Johnson changes his ways. We're going to see a government shutdown. And that puts a lot of things at risk. And I don't know if we're going to see aid to Ukraine. And so this Putin coddling element of the Republican Party is going to be thrilled. Marge, I didn't see Donald Trump's influence in this vote, per se. Uh, Do you think Donald Trump factored into Johnson's winning the speakership? Well, yes, because for one thing, that we would have had a Speaker Emmer if Trump had not. I understand that. that I understand that. So he brought them to this point, and I tend to agree with Brandon, that he was elected largely out of exhaustion, and those moderate Republicans see they're not going to get anybody that satisfies them, and they decided to go along with the wilder faction of the party. Um, But Trump was not opposed to Johnson. He 
as we've already said, he was one of the architects of that ridiculous lawsuit trying to, um, you know, negate the election. Um, he also signed on to MAGA. He's part of the Freedom Caucus. Trump has no reason to oppose him. Tom Emmer, though, was not against Donald Trump necessarily, but he voted to certify the election results. That's right. And Trump that's remembers being against as far as Trump is concerned. And that's it. That's the end of the day, isn't it? That's the litmus test. That's the only one. And nobody who voted to certify Biden was going to get the majority vote. But Trump it is so personal then, that. isn't it? That's not about an issue. That's not about a policy. It was if you voted to certify the results of the election. And think about that. That's not a conspiracy theory. It's, hey, Joe Biden won. Yes, I agree. I'll sign on. That, that's the loyalty. Think clip. about that. That's that's really yeah. amazing, isn't it? I think that's where we are. I know that, but it's where we've been. And I think we sort of forget either how Donald Trump's thumb is still on the scale or how how absurd it is that members of the House of Representatives do not believe that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. Martha Raddatz asked Johnson, and it was Rachel Scott from ABC that posed mm-hmm. the question, right. about... He passed, and the assembled Congress people laughed at the absurdity of the question. But there was the one legislator standing next to him just screamed, Shut up! Shut up! And the woman who said that was the chair of the education committee in the House of Representatives. Isn't that? That's one of your colleagues there. Well, Uh, there's also all those reports that there was all kinds of um, behind the scenes threats if people didn't support or or did oppose or whatever the decisions were, people feel threatened. And when I say people, I mean, Congress members are being threatened. They could be outed. There's a reason why Trump keeps getting fined for violating gag orders, which is another thing we could talk about if you want. But he will threaten and bully to the point that he brings out real danger. If you put out, if he put something on social media that says this Congress man or woman is doing the wrong thing and you ought to show him what's right. He, his life is in danger. Her life is in danger. That's the reality. So you think this litmus test is kind of ridiculous, but more outrageous is that he controls the party through bullying. It wasn't long ago that we heard about this attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband and the plot. That's right. From an extremist to, uh, you know, cut her kneecaps and all kinds of terrible things. When you invite extremists into your party, this is what happens. Extremists are going to heed the call. And so we're in a bad shape, John. We really are. It does make it then maybe that much more remarkable that Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and Kenneth Chesborough, attorneys who either represented Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the election or chimed in in one capacity or another. It's not clear if, for instance, Sidney Powell was actually working for the president's team or not. But it's amazing then that they seem to, with immunity now, be flipping on the president, testifying. As we sit here right now, I'm not sure if Mark Meadows has in fact testified against the president with the grant of immunity or not. But that is the reporting today. Mark Meadows, his chief of staff. Well, if they don't flip, they'll be flipped against. They, they're they all in it together. And so once 
Jenna Ellis and some of these others. The one who's going to really get sacked is Rudy, of course. Giuliani. Yeah, Giuliani, for sure. But you, you, maybe they're being promised when they finish a short sentence in prison, they'll get in the witness protection program. <laughs> but that is an interesting point. That is, if, if they don't turn, then they're going to be turned on. Joining us now on the Mincing Rascals podcast, Axios is Monica Eng, a return to the Mincing Rascals. Monica, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm great. How are you? You've been busy. I am. Bouncing <laughs> around one story after another. Well, that's a good thing, though. Say it like, I am, not... Oh. I am. I love r- trying to sound like an expert on a new thing at every minute. Yes, right. <laughs> well, we're going to borrow your expertise, or at least your reporting here, on this headline. Why the arrival of Ukrainian refugees and Latino migrants in Chicago has been so different. I must say, one of the things that jumped out in your report to me is I did not realize Chicago, in the last year and a half, has absorbed... 30,000, maybe more Ukrainians. I don't see them, or I don't see them where I see some of the people from Venezuela. We've got maybe 19,000 immigrants from South and Central America now, and the Ukrainians don't seem to be as evident, if you will, as displaced as these Latinos. So you wrote about that. What can you tell us? Well, exactly. As as you said, I mean, it was almost imperceptible unless you're a Chicago public school teacher. Uh, this this absorption of 30 by some counts, 35,000 Ukrainians over the last 18 months. And so I wanted to understand how a much smaller number of largely Venezuelans, but also Haitians and Nicaraguans um, could make such an impact, whereas these refugees slash migrants, you almost didn't feel it. So I wanted to understand the different um, factors behind each of the migrant groups. And I found three to four major differences that made the Ukrainian arrival seem almost imperceptible, while the the Venezuelan arrival, it's catastrophic. Um, and so, number one, uh, there was there's a program called U4U. It's uh, actually Uniting for Ukraine that the U.S. government started in April 2022 that allows um, any Americans, you don't even have to be a relative, to sponsor people from Ukraine and their whole family to come over. And um, you fill out this form. Uh, everybody who's who's kind of worked on it said, basically, you need an internet connection and a place to live in Chicago. You can say, I've got an apartment in Albany Park that I live in, and they can sleep on the floor, and I, I'm not related to them, but I'd like them to come over here their names. Bing, bang, boom. They get visas. They arrive on the ground. They get social security cards. They can work immediately. And um, they there's this group called the Self- Self-Reliance Association, a Ukrainian group that speaks to them in their own language, gets them signed up for everything, gets their kids signed up for school. A very streamlined process that gives Ukrainians immediately a leg up on, let's say, this other group of migrants in that they they're here legally. They have work authorization and they have a sponsor, someone who says, I will watch out for them. On the other hand, most of the the Latino migrants who've arrived here don't have sponsors, don't have work authorization and um, and have not come here through a program where the United States is officially welcoming them. And they don't get a Social Security card. Did you say the Ukrainians get a Social Security card? Yes. Yep. Wow. Um, Wow. Even a work permit. Even and a work permit, yeah. They have two years of, but many are anticipating perhaps staying longer than two years. Now, is there uh, a, 
economic difference between the people who are coming from Ukraine versus the people who are coming up from Central America? Because the people who are coming up from Central America, it seems like they're coming here with like the clothes on their backs and right. they, they're escaping from extreme poverty. The, Ukraine, the U- Ukrainians are escaping from a different sort of situation. They may come over here with with just more resources, not just these connections, but all, but literally wealth of some sort that uh, right. at least at least a modest amount that gets them so they're not having to sleep on tents in the sidewalk in front of police stations most of them are arriving with you know several suitcases rather than a little bundle they just carried for a thousand miles yeah um it's unclear i haven't seen data to say that let's say the education rate is different but it, that also might be the case as well um, and then the third thing that everybody said to me, and not many people wanted to say on the record, was that Ukrainians being, you know, European people, they blended in, whereas, you know, you have darker skinned migrants who uh, maybe don't blend in as well. Although you'd think in a, in a city where it's one third black, one third white, one third Latino, um, they would. But they said that um, that generally uh, Europeans have been welcomed better than those from from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and on top of that, um, you know, we are officially supporting the Ukrainians in the war. Our relationship with Venezuela is much more complicated. And many people would even argue, I mean, the Council on Foreign Relations argues that our sanctions against Venezuela helped further destabilize the economy, which actually exacerbated out migration. So, um, you know, it, they look very different. The, the two groups, their arrival looks very different. And it's because it was based on very different circumstances. Uh, Monica, though, if we wanted to, could we grant the same opportunity for the people coming from South and Central America that we did for the Ukrainians, that program you described where they're given a work permit, et cetera? Could we do that with the flip of a switch or however easily it was done? Could we afford that to the Venezuelans? It's a really good question. I was talking to the Department of Homeland Security for weeks and weeks and weeks when, do you remember when Pritzker and and Johnson and folks in New York and other states had their push, we got to do expedited work permits, we got to do expedited work permits. And and the feds kept saying impossible. They're like, Monica, it can't be done. It's impossible. It's not, you know, it would break laws. I'm like, break laws or you guys don't want to do it. It would be very, then they started saying very inappropriate, be very inappropriate for us to do. It's not what Mallorcas does. And then the next week it's like oh look at that anybody who arrived um after or before july 31st will get a work permit they still have to jump through some hoops they still have to fill out some forms to get tps and work permits but suddenly the impossible was possible uh those who are in immigration law say it's a matter of will it's a matter of how we want to see this migrant group and what federal laws we want to make for their migration so I think theoretically it would be possible to create a similar situation, but is there will at the top? Is there will in Congress? Is there will in the seat in the in the street in the city? I- yeah, I'm just wondering. You know, we we have this situation where winter's coming on. We've been ha- pretty lucky that we haven't seen a freeze in October. The average first freeze is something on like uh, October 14th or something like that. We haven't seen a freeze yet, but we've got people living in these flimsy tents. Uh, on, on sidewalks and in parks and the city's efforts to find something safe and permanent for them for the winter seem like they're lagging. And I don't sense the urgency from the city. Maybe it's going on behind the scenes, but it's it is it's going to get really cold really fast. And we're going to see some big problems. And I, I was wondering if are people on the panel, do you share my feeling of like, 
like, hey, where's the where's the urgency? Where and where's the plan to get this done? Right. I mean, I would say that there is a lot of urgency on the Brandon Johnson's administration part, and too much urgency, according to the people of Brighton Park. They're like, hey, why didn't you talk to us more? We want to have lots and lots of meetings about this, and I tell you no. I mean, whether he says I'm proposing a building or he says I'm proposing tents, everyone says nimby, nimby, nimby. So I don't I don't envy his his situation behind the scenes, I think, is a problem. He's elected to be transparent. He's elected to be uh, collaborative. Uh, I would if I had my old job in the press uh, mayor's press office, I would organize a press conference to talk about the migrant issue. Has he stood at a podium to say, here, here's the issue. We need expedited work permits. I'm working with our senators to do that. We need uh, more facilities. I'm hiring this uh, firm to search out buildings downtown and elsewhere. We need a volunteer network. I'm standing here with some of the amazing volunteers who are coordinating services for thousands of migrants in every police district across the city so police could do the other parts of their job. Like, I just haven't seen him talk about the comprehensive issue and what he's doing to tackle each aspect of it. It's it's one off. We find out about the tent city thing after a contract is signed with a dubious uh, organization, by the way, the same one that buses people up here now is going to make more money by providing these tents. Um, but where are they going to go? Now we have Brighton Park, but otherwise we don't know the criteria for how they'll be placed. I could go on. There, that's how you build a strategy and then talk to the public, aldermen and voters and residents about what your plan is. I've never heard I, that. I should I should say that they did have a plan. In fact, they announced it on Ben Jarofsky's, um like uh, mm. the way we find out anything the city's doing is we listen to that show because apparently I think they they think they can talk to them and nobody will find out. And we found out there was a plan and we're like, hey, send us the plan. The city has a whole PowerPoint of their plan. It's a five-point plan. And Christina Passioni at Zayas, she told me about that plan. And I said, please send it to me. Oh, no problem. I will. But something in the mayor's press office is like, do not share this with anyone. She ended up sending it to me. And it does say, here are the five things we're going to do. First thing, clear out the um, police station. Second, make the shelters more secure. Third, get more caseworkers to take people from shelters to independent living. Fourth, go down to Texas. Tell everybody how freaking cold it is here. (laughs) And then fifth, I can't remember what the last thing was. But um, for some reason, they don't want to share it. And I think it's like a secretiveness that I'm not sure where well, it comes from. People in Texas are being bused here. The migrants are being bused here. They're not like choosing Chicago off the map. They're being bused here by the governor of Texas because they want to stick a thumb in the eye of Chicago, right? It's a, well, And yeah, he knows, and he knows it's cold here. According to Catholic Charities in San Antonio, I said, what are you guys doing? Why are you spending FEMA money giving plane tickets to people to Chicago? We can't handle it. They're like, Monica, we don't get to choose. They said they want to go to Chicago. That's my understanding also. Yeah, Yeah, we want to play because they say they want to go. They say they know someone there. Yeah, people know 19,000 Venezuelans here. Um, and nobody's telling them quite the truth of the situation. And and they tell us, so I said, I said, are you making sure that there's that there's someone there to meet them? Oh, yeah, they all tell us they have sponsors. I said, do you vet those sponsors? Do you make sure those sponsors are like they exist? Well, we don't really have the resources. And Christina Pasionazayas tells me sometimes the sponsor address they give, it's a police station. 
it seems like we've created this problem by we haven't, but Texas has created this problem by sending people up here, and then people who are, are who are down there at the border say, "Well, yeah, I know somebody in Chicago because you bust them here, right?" I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a bit of remember a the first bus, situation. yeah. And they don't always know uh, where they're going. There's a lot of um, dishonesty that happens when they sign people up for those buses. Uh, we've read those stories too. Well. And if you're just somewhere plopped into Texas, I don't know how much these people know about our geography or our cities or who lives where. But my understanding is they say, do you want to go to Chicago? And they, they're they sitting there in Texas. And I think some of them say yes, almost by default. And yeah. they're put on they the buses. They tell them their jobs. They tell them it's a sanctuary city. You're going to be welcomed. Texas it's a destination city. Yeah, they, right. They've heard of Chicago. Uh, and it is right. It is a, is a sanctuary city. I, I think about the Johnson administration's lack of transparency, which is mystifying. It's, and it's not just on this issue. It's on a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. I think it would benefit them to do some sort of town hall with the different communities involving all of them. Latino communities, black communities who have expressed at every turn, we don't want tents here. We don't want shelters here. We don't want anything. I, I think there needs to be clear communication from the top, from the mayor himself, as to why he and his administration and the city feel like it's important to, you know, provide the shelter and housing and, and live up to that sanctuary city thing. What that entails um, and what kind of buy in that that takes for a neighborhood and a community. He's got to be able to, to, to take the heat, to sit there, talk to people, listen to people, hear their legitimate concerns, and then address those, right? And as Monica j- just shared, there's a plan in place. Why are we not hearing about it? It I actually sounds kind of coherent. About that. So, like, it probably wouldn't hurt to just tell people, here is what I'm looking at here. Here's how we map it out. I'm very mystified at the lack of transparency across the board. Maybe the problem is that it's because he's not getting that plan done. The editorial in the Tribune today, how much more can we afford of amateur hour on the fifth floor, brought up some of these issues and took him to task. The first thing that they brought up was the lack of transparency in the, what ward was it, the 12th ward, where they wanted to put up one of the tents, and then everybody showed up and said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Mostly white people protesting the Latinos that would be put in tents there. I have... Great sympathy for these people. I pass them by all the time downtown Chicago. And if you drive by a police station in the city, you see them. And your heart must just break for them. The ones that I see are often very young, often with very young children. And I just don't know how we're able to figuratively or literally continue to drive by them. And then when when a plan comes up, even with a dubious contractor, like, all right, how about we put them in a tent and we'll put some heaters in there and some water and they'll live there this winter. And that's not good enough for people. I would be happy to have a tent in your backyard. <laughs> Maybe some of these, the, the, some of this can be solved by having some smaller tent encampments around the city. I mean, we, they're already in, in parks and under and underpasses, already these smaller tent encampments. So we could just maybe build those out and have them be, for, rather than for 500 or 1,500 people, depending on how many, have them be for, for 50 people or something so that it doesn't feel like they're going to come in and, and take over a neighborhood, which seems to be the fear of the people in the 12th Ward, which is like, it's really going to affect our property values. It's going to affect crime. Uh, I don't know to the extent to which those fears are valid, but when you have a, a huge uh, influx of people to your neighborhood, I can see where that would rattle some some dishes in people's houses. Didn't didn't the mayor ask every alderman to give a suggested location where migrants in tents or yeah. otherwise yeah. shelters, yeah. other kind of facility? Twelfth Ward didn't give any site. Now, 
uh, they were one was chosen for them. And they understand only one in four alder, alders did respond. Right. Only one in four. Suggestion. By the way, Brandon is going to tap out, it looks like, right now. And Brandon, I know there were some other issues we wanted to talk with you about. We can sure do that on the next pod, if that's okay with you. Fair enough? Sounds great to me. Uh, go Buckeyes. Uh, rest <laughs> in peace, Michigan Wolverines. <laughs> we'll be in touch, man. Thank you. Brandon. You, you, you know, Mon- uh, uh, Marge, as you were speaking, I divided uh, 50 into 200,000. If we have about, what is it, 50 neighborhoods or wards in the city? 50 wards. Or it's 78 or 77 functioning neighborhoods. Okay, well then let's do the wards into 20,000. That would only be 400 people per ward if 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 we wanted to do it that way, Eric. I mean, it doesn't sound it's onerous. The migration stops with, here. With uh, true, numbers. true. Okay, 800 then. Monica, what? where do we house these people? I mean, look, I'm no apologist for the mayor, and I have seen the lack of transparency, and I've been so frustrated by it. But if if there's a fight at every single meeting, and every time I attend a city council meeting, it starts with a barrage of people saying how bad an idea it is to help anyone from another country. Um, but if you have a fight at every meeting, do you want 50 fights or do you want to find a place to put half of the migrants and have one fight? Um, I can see the frustration. Anything he brings up is is there's pushback. And I, and I want to see transparency. I want to see um, lots of town halls. If they go the way um, the commenters at the previous town halls and at city council have gone, it's all going to bring out a lot of ugliness in Chicago. And I get it. We're overwhelmed. But people have nothing but words of hate for these people at, at, these, at these town halls I've seen. Maybe there, but there's also a constituency that supports the migrants. There's a network of, of volunteers Absolutely. at every they're police feeling, station. They're feeling so stretched. These mutual aid groups, they're telling me, they're like, wow, Monica, when I see that story you did on favorite health care, where one shift, one shift, a worker makes $2,700 for one day of work. And like, and our little nonprofit, we're like struggling to stay alive. But favorite healthcare gets to pay one worker in one day twenty seven hundred dollars. They're they're feeling like, am I an idiot or what? I mean, the it, for one week to staff the Wadsworth School Shelter, it was almost a half a million just in staffing. Okay, let's talk about that just briefly. So that is, if I'm not mistaken, you're referring to the people that were getting the money that were working in migrant care. We're working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, nonstop. At least that's what the city's been getting well, some billed. Of them, I mean, I've got hundreds of pages of invoices. Some of them worked three days in a row. Some of them worked seven days in a row. But hey, if I was getting $2,700 a day, I'd, I'd be like, until I'm dead, I'm going to try to work this. But is, are those numbers real? Uh, do you think that individuals are actually getting paid that amount of money I think by the city? Oh, believe me, I've got lots of questions to favorite. How much money do you take from each person, each worker's pay every day? Do you get 50% of that? They won't answer. Get who favorite spokesperson is i don't know Does anybody remember joanna klonsky yes Ooh, lightfoot fill us in. Fill us in. lightfoot's consultant is the spokesperson for favorite health care wow all right and, so connect the dots what i'm sorry what does all that mean what's the significance of that lori lightfoot's the one who signed this contract <laughs> and now she's going to be crucified for it's paying a half a million dollars for one week of staffing at one of the more than 20 shelters, paying people $2,700 a day for one shift to work at these shelters. It's not a good deal. Hmm. And so it's very strange that one of her closest consultants is now the face of favorite health care. 
And is that where our $300 million is going? Because it seems to me like a lot of money's been earmarked for this. And I'm amazed that we can't find a place to put a tent in the ground. Somehow or another, $300 million has been budgeted for this. Yeah, it was $57 million just to favor it um, over the course of the contract. The city will not say when the contract is over. The city will not favor it, won't even answer basic questions like, yeah, how long does the contract go? Can you tell me about these codes on these invoices? What does this person do to make $2,700 in one day? What does this person do? She's like, Monica, I'm sorry, I can't answer any of those questions. It's like, why are you the spokesperson for a company that won't even answer basic questions? Are they inept or are they corrupt? Is this graft or is this just overwhelming? It's a big company to not even have a a single PR person. Like, I have been calling and NBC has been calling their media relations people for months trying to get a single word out of them. The first thing I heard was, Joanna, hi, Monica, I'm representing them. What can I do for you? Just like, I'm sorry, I can't answer any of the questions. I would hope the inspector general is paying attention. That would be the only way to get those answers, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is taxpayer dollars. This isn't, this shouldn't be a secret how long the contract is and how, or if we've gotten actual local workers. The reason you have to pay them, some of them, up to $2,700 a day is because these are not local workers. They need hotel rooms. So you got to pay them more. And so people are like, well, why couldn't you hire any locals? They finally started. Um, as of September 15th, they hired up to 265 local workers. Local workers to help the migrants. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, to, to be staffers. But otherwise, these are all staffers. People are who are staffing the shelters come from out of town. You're it's kidding. It's company we're paying this to. Wow. And where are we putting them? What kind of hotel accommodations are we putting them exactly. up? Exactly. You know, if that was a per diem for me, I'd stay at my cousin's house and collect it. But I mean, we got to pay them $2,700 a day because they got to stay at a hotel, too. Were they staying to Four Seasons? I mean, that's crazy. We don't know. Yeah, no kidding. And what are we to make of the fact that – I just want to ask you guys if you have any thoughts about Joliet Township. The city of Joliet is largely in the township, but the townships in the city, they kind of over, they overlap and almost are one and the same. Joliet Township has a population of 85,000, one-third Latino, about 15% foreign-born. Point being that maybe they would be receptive to – shouldering their share of the burden. There were $8 million that could have gone from the township to the city. And in fact, they're withdrawing the application for the grant. They don't want the migrants to come to Joliet. $8 million to care for them. And they said no to that too. St. Louis wants them. St. Louis does? St. Louis has made uh, an appeal. They need workers and and again, I haven't seen the mayor comment on this. Maybe I missed something, but um, I, I would like to hear, you know, an open invitation to St. Louis and other cities that need workers when there are people here who have skills and who want to work. I I went over to the Jewel near my house yesterday and a family sitting out front and I have a rudimentary Spanish and could have a conversation with folks, which I do when I see them. And um, they're saying, you know, they took a dangerous journey. They worked hard to get here. They just want a job. Can we clean your house? Can we uh, work, uh, you know, mechanic jobs? They have skills they would like to have. And our country has a very low uh, unemployment rate. We need workers. This is why so many governors got together and begged Biden to please have uh, to create expedited work permits. And when I talked to the Department of Homeland Security, I said, 
Well, couldn't you, I mean, I talked about this very controversial, they called it the Trump plan or something, no, the Abbott plan, where it was reported that there was a report in DHS to um, do equal distribution. I can't remember the word they used. Basically, they would tell people where to go. Oklahoma needs people, you know, Montana needs people. There's a town in Peoria that needs a thousand factory workers. Um, but they said, it's it's illegal. We can't tell people where to go. But, um, but a, a lot of these governors say we really need agricultural workers. We really need people mm. in manufacturing. And we would love to be able to create a program for them to go to. That's what St. Louis is doing. It's still in the early stages, but they want to get private money to be able to bring people to St. Louis to work and to help with their depopulation. I thought Marge's story was going to be she went to the Jewel and they were so understaffed. <laughs> that she wishes that some of these people out front could go inside and work. There are entry-level jobs and low-skilled jobs that I think all of us run into almost every day, and yet we are making it difficult for these people to find employment. That's why that deal that the Ukrainians have, the program that's there for the Ukrainians, would make so much sense for the Latinos here. They can have that program, but they have to have sponsors. There has to be someone on this side to line us up to say, yes, someone can sleep in my spare bedroom. I will sponsor and take care of. That's the piece that residents of Chicago are doing. They're organized to do. They're willing to do for Ukrainians. And they are not organized or unwilling to do so for people who come from Latin America. Right. Yeah, and there was a long-established Ukrainian community here. There was not a long-established Venezuelan community. But it's not to say that other people can't take in Venezuelans, but it was the cart before the horse. They arrived, then they'll look for sponsors. With the Ukrainian program, you have a sponsor, then you arrive. It strikes me that we're seeing in our city a version of what's happening nationally. That is, Texas said, why should we have the burden of accepting all the migrants because we border? We're going to send them all over. Of course, they didn't send us the money they get to manage migrants, if they'd have sent them with money, sort of like the school voucher thing, let the money follow the migrant, perhaps that would have helped our city. And now citywide, people are saying, are you going to send the migrants to my ward or my neighborhood? And if so, what resources will there be to back them up? I think we all have the same questions and the same um, shortage of funding. Here we are, this great sanctuary city, and then I'm ready to send them to Joliet. Uh, or wasn't wasn't there talk at City Hall about actually sending some of the migrants here to other cities outside of Chicago? Brandon Johnson said that he was talking to suburbs about helping share the burden, but it doesn't seem like there's that much of an appetite <laughs> for it. One of the stories we want to do at Axios is look at the M.O. of Denver, look at the M.O. of um, San Antonio, and look at the M.O. of Chicago when it comes to arriving migrants. They see themselves as processing cities. Hey, welcome. Here's some socks and a backpack. Let's get you a ticket for the next town. That's what Denver does. When you arrive in Denver, they say, hey, great to see you. The Coliseum's over there, and they will give you a ticket wherever you want to go. In Chicago, we say, okay, here's where you're going to sleep. Here's your bus card. We we don't see ourselves as a processing city. We are a resettlement city. And so Alderman Will Hall, when he visited Texas, he said, we need to get the money from the feds as a resettlement city, because that's going to be a different portion of money than just a processing and move them on. City. We have a family in the first district from Denver, actually, who just arrived, I think, yesterday. We're like, why is Denver sending us people? They said really? someone here, but they 
didn't. And it's not Chicago's fault. I said this to a reporter, the Texas Tribune, about the idea that we will target Chicago. Maybe they think we're fools because we declared ourselves a sanctuary city. And so they're going to teach us a lesson. Okay, maybe we were fools because we didn't have a program in place. We can't accommodate these people. We don't have the resources or the experience. But it's not our fault that you have a migrant crisis. It may not be fair for them, but it's not fair to us either. That's where you need federal federal level comprehensive immigration reform. This this screams, we need comprehensive immigration reform. Especially with the DNC coming. One other topic that I know is on March Halperin's um, mind today, and March, we're glad you're here, Killers of the Flower Moon, blockbuster book, blockbuster movie. Why is that on your radar today? Well, I've seen the movie. I think it's extraordinary. Um, And following up on all kinds of backstory and analysis about it and its impact, um, I see that Oklahoma is one of those states that passed a law limiting what teachers can teach in the classroom based on whether the topic might make students of a certain race or uh, sex or otherwise uncomfortable. So there are teachers that are being interviewed in the media that say they're not sure they can teach the book or the movie or the concept of how the Osage people were murdered uh, for their money and their wealth by whites um, and by white men who would marry the women in the tribe and then take over uh, their wealth. Um, so uh, here's this issue. And the same with Tulsa, by the way, the Tulsa massacre, also questionable about whether it's safe for teachers to teach that in an Oklahoma classroom. And yet there was a major PBS series about it. Um, There's now the movie and the book about uh, the Osage people. And the word is getting out. How is popular culture making sure that history is protected and shared even if it can't be taught in the classroom. Popular culture, picking up what at least the education system won't do, is what you're saying. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's why Martin Scorsese made the movie or David Graham wrote the book, but it's what was amazing to me, and Tulsa was uh, the first example of late for me of this, is how did I not know about that? How did I never hear about what happened in Tulsa, or for that matter, with the Osage in Oklahoma? At one point, the <laughs> they'd been so marginalized, they were eventually districted into this plot of land nobody would fight them over in Oklahoma. And lo and behold, they're sitting on top of the largest oil reserve anybody knew of, and suddenly became the richest population per capita in the world. That in 1920, what was the year, something or another, in that one year alone, the money that they collected was the equivalent today of $400 million, divided among about 2,000 people. They were fabulously wealthy. And then the whites decided, hey, maybe we gave them a better deal than we should have. They either marry into them or just start to poison them off so that they can collect the oil rights and the money that went with it. Stunning. And the federal Stunning. government cooperated uh, by setting up the Bureau of Indian Affairs, setting up a system, declaring them incompetent just by nature of their race so that they needed a white guardian. But here's something I've learned in my post-movie research. That wasn't the end of the exploitation because once they had control over the oil, they didn't have the means of production. So uh, Getty uh, and many of the major oil companies built fortunes by continuing to steal from them. There's a story out now that 
uh, unbelievably to me, the Koch brothers who built their fortune on oil made a deal sanctioned by the Bureau of Indian Affairs where for every two barrels of oil they would remove and move to um, process, they got one barrel free. Buy two, get one free. They built their fortune, which they later used to undermine our democracy, on the backs of the Osage Nation. The whites in the community had two prices. One was for the whites and one was for the Indian price, they called it. And then, because they had unlimited amount of money, but not many resources, you could just charge them anything. A casket for a burial would cost many tens of thousands of dollars, but they would all just shrug and say, well, the money's coming and 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 we can get it. So that was sort of the bizarre economy that was set up. And so while this story is like an amazing book and an amazing movie, writ large, I think what it really says is how we marginalize populations, how we treat people differently. And that's the bigger story that needs to be told. And this would be an easy way to teach it. And, and it has not been. I asked my radio listeners, what are the things that you think you should have learned or we should be learning, that our kids should be learning. You know, back in the day was how to balance a checkbook or change a tire, how to change the oil on your car. That was something, you know, well, the school should teach. And I'm sure we have some stories in Chicago of our own past that when we think about it for a couple of minutes, the redlining of neighborhoods Do they teach redlining in classrooms, right? I don't know that they do. Or how lawsuits, it took lawsuits to inject some fairness in how park district money was spent citywide. About the Burge tour um issues and some do and some teach it sort of we did a story in curious city like how much are is how much are chicago public schools really following the directive to teach about um burgess torture of witnesses of, of suspects i didn't know that that comes up in chicago public schools it's supposed to but uh people interpret the mandate very differently from school to school okay we'll end it right there on that All well done. And uh, ladies, thanks for being part of the podcast today. Marge and Monica, thanks for being part of the Mincing Rascals this week. Thanks for including me. Same. Yeah, Monica, you guys are doing such a great job at Axios. It's really, um, uh, the stuff you're covering is, it's great. Anyway, that's it. Yeah. Thank you so much. We steal lots of ideas from your newsletter. Well, and mm-hmm. uh, and I'm I'm of course promoting your th- this one. Well, thank I mean, we you for promoting about. the top anchors. Yeah, yeah. Oh, who's by the way? If you, when when are you going to post the results from the semis today? You uh, you following this? They're, they're doing best retired anchors, and they've got Ron and Carol going against each other. I think they're going to. Yeah, I think they're going to be the last two. Today. Is oh, Walter Jacobson was probably in there, right? He was in there, but but Ron Majors beat him. One, did he? Yeah. Okay. The final four is Ron against Carol, Bill Curtis against John Drury. Well, John Drury, Bill Curtis, Carol, Marine, Ron Majors. He hasn't said who the winner is yet. And those are anchors. Those aren't sports guys. Those aren't weathercasters. Have to be um, still alive, not dead. Oh no, it can be dead. No, just retired and not and hasn't moved on to the networks. Like oh yeah, and, ha- and not not still Le- working. In Lester, the Lester Holt wouldn't count. qualify then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to it's do weathercasters? Are you going to do sports guys? Bill Frank? I think if if Exios says last, we will get down to you know uh, food the food casters. <laughs> the thing <laughs> is that there's, weather, there's, there's yeah. no con- with weather. There's no content. I mean, it's got to be skilling, right? It can't. Yeah. Kind of. That's yeah. not going to be a fair. 
Yeah. Sportscasters yeah. can yeah. be interesting though, because yeah, you got Johnny Morris, you got Mark Jean Greco, you got Weigel. Bruce Wolf, I suppose. Yeah, Weigel, absolutely. I, that could be. Yeah, I I can see content here. I Justin Kaufman wants to do sports coaches retire. Who, who you would have Ditka, you would have Harbaugh. Ozzie Guillen for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah. That would be a good one. Well, um, Monica and Marge and Eric, uh, Brandon (laughs) tapped out. Uh, Brandon, by the way, said a couple of things last week when we were talking about Israel and Palestine. And I know he took some heat for it. And I I did want to give him a chance to clarify, but he didn't have time to stay on the pod today. And we didn't even get to that part of the world too much. We will next week. We're produced by Pete Zimmerman. And we'll drop another pod on you next week. Okay. Thanks, everybody. That was Thank you, ladies. Marge, oh, Monica, you Monica, can you can you, Thanks, email, you, can you email or text me if you, when you get the result? Because I do want to promote the finals, and I'm coming out tomorrow morning when you guys are. So if I can just sure. with I'll link to your finals and and uh, and weigh in, of course. So, oh, of course. Okay. Right. Take care. See you later. Bye. Okay. Bye, everybody. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 